Hello, and welcome to What's the Big Idea? I'm your host, Andrew Whitmire. Today's episode is brought to you by Destination Imagination, commonly referred to as DI, the leading creative problem-solving experience for children. Through DI's innovative, project-based educational experiences, participants gain the skills that will set them up for success in careers like the one we're going to hear about today. Learn more about DI at destinationimagination.org. On today's episode, we are pleased to welcome Ted Tagami. Ted is the co-founder of Magnitude.io, which provides unique STEM experiences to future scientists and engineers around the world. Ted is also the education chair of the User Advisory Committee for the U.S. National Lab on the International Space Station. He's currently working on ExoLab 9, an astrobotany experiment in microgravity. Ted describes himself as an artist by trade who works with brilliant people in their area of domain expertise. And a little secret for everyone who's listening, Ted is pretty brilliant himself. Joining us today from Berkeley, California, please welcome Ted Tagami. Hi, Ted. Hey, Andrew. Good morning. <laughs> Good afternoon, I guess, for you. Yes, yes. How, how are you doing today? Oh, it's glorious. I'm feeling really good. Thank you. Um, but hey, let's let's jump right in. You obviously are uh, pretty, pretty big into the space space, if you will. Um, but the path you took to get to kind of where you are today was a little more circuitous. So if you could tell us a little bit sort of about yourself and just your journey to sort of how you got to where you are today, uh, I think that'd be a great place to start. Holy smokes. Well, that's probably a longer journey than your than your audience really <laughs> wants to listen in on. But uh, Securitas is probably a good um, good way to to identify the path. Um, you, you, you follow what you enjoy. At least I have. Uh, I'm what I would classify as late middle aged, which means I'm getting close to 60. Um, and so I've had a number of, of things I've been able to try and do. Um, but what I've come back to was that a first original love being a very small person kind of, I guess I was getting into first grade maybe, but I was watching them go to the moon, Andrew. It was absolutely amazing. These guys were on a rocket and they're going to the moon. And that inspiration, uh, I kind of wove in a lot of different things, you know, internet startups and real estate and a bunch of other things. But invariably it looped me back around because I ended up getting kids of my own and they grew up. And they were in high school and uh, I was looking at the way our educational systems were working today. And that thing that I'm most passionate about, that creativity and the imagination and being able to take that and applying it for something was what I was feeling was missing. I was seeing that my sons were really understanding fundamentals in school and they had the building blocks, but they didn't know how to apply it. Right. And so for me, if we could do something at magnitude, was a company that we created eight years ago, it would be a way to introduce those opportunities, to think about your foundational building blocks of math and of, and of reading at the younger ages or of science investigation as they got older. So yeah, a lot of different paths to get to where I am and uh, getting into the space, space as you called it, um, was I was very naive. And I, if anything, I was bringing that six-year-old imagination along with me. Uh, to figure out at the age of 50, what was it that we needed to do? Um, and that naivete and that willingness to say, I don't know, can you help mm -hmm. me? But being willing to take notes and learn and do homework, I think it's super important. If you're going to ask someone that really is good at what they do, 
You've got to be willing to step up and, and do go above and beyond if they even, if you even want to get their attention. So that's something mm-hmm. I've been challenged with. And it's a lot of hard work. It took us about four years uh, from starting from zero. Uh, but we got our first mission in orbit after four years. And we've been fortunate enough to be able to put something up uh, every year and in some years, a couple with our next mission. I think you mentioned the top of the uh, uh, conversation here with our Exolab 9 which launches in August. That's really great to hear. And, and, you know, it's so interesting because a lot of times our, our guests on this podcast, I find that there's, there's this moment that happens often when we're very young, that really inspires us um, to ultimately come back around um, and reconnect with that moment of awe or inspiration that takes place in childhood. Um, so it's great to hear that that seeing you know the uh, you know us going to space, humans going to space, going to the moon, um, those those moments really sort of inspired you, and through the different experiences you had, sort of led you back around to the the really important work that you're doing today with Magnitude.io. Now with magnitude.io. Um, let's talk a little bit about that because you've got a, a very unique project that, that actually just launched with Exolab 9. Can you tell uh, our listeners uh, a little bit more about Exolab 9 and its connection to the International Space Station? Absolutely. Let me start with a correction. So we just concluded Exolab 8. Okay. Sorry. Uh, Sorry about that. 9 is scheduled to go up. Uh, and this is actually interesting. They're almost back to back and we're replicating the mission from eight. But I'll rewind a little bit because that might be a little kind of inside baseball. I want everyone to imagine that truck on the highway. And I think you've heard this example before, Andrew, but it's so relevant. There's a 40 foot container on that back of that truck. And it might have been on a ship a day ago or that it came from another country or it might have been on a rail car. In in the world of commerce, that's called intermodal transportation. And without intermodal transportation, we would not have the luxury goods that we get from around the world or or, um, inexpensive products, uh, clothing, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Intermodal transportation, fill the box. And if you can fill the box, you can send it somewhere. There is intermodal transportation for space. And that was the breakthrough moment for me going from a kid watching a rocket go to the moon to this box. If I can fill the box, it's going to be easy for me to get to space. Still Mm -hmm. expensive, mind you, but it's a lot easier from an engineering perspective. And that box is just a four inch cube. Right. And so, uh, you know, that if you get everything inside that volume, 10 centimeters uh, on a side weighing no more than like 1.3 kilograms, you can kind of build a satellite uh, that takes a little more work because you have to think about power and communications and, and your orbital mechanics and what have you. But if you can get to the space station, they're going to take care of a lot of that stuff for you. Again, it's kind of expensive, but it enables us to think about uh, what you can do once you get up there. And uh, I have to, first of all, give a big shout out and thanks to the U.S. National Laboratory on the International Space Station. U.S. National Laboratory is a nonprofit funded through an act of Congress in partnership with NASA provides half of the things we send up there, half of the up mass to the space station on the U.S. side, and also is responsible for half of the astronaut crew time. Not your new commercial crew that's coming up, but all of the NASA astronauts that are uh, heading up there. So they're responsible for half their crew time as well. 
So without their kind of uh, partnership, we wouldn't be able to do the things we do. So we've got the intermodal transportation. We have the the port, if you will, it's allowing us to dock our ship. Uh, and then we need a ride. And so there are a number of ways we can get up there. Often, I think a lot of people are excited about SpaceX. SpaceX is uh, quite often the one that sends us up. We're on the SpaceX 23 resupply mission on August 29th on this one. So that's kind of like the mechanics of how these things work. But what's inside our container? What's inside our our our, uh, our exolab? So this yeah. building block I described this four inch or 10 centimeter cube is like a building block. It's like a Lego. So I can put two of these together or four of these together, or eight of them. And I've got a modular system that everyone else knows what to do with it, right? It can fit in these different places. So mm -hmm. our lab experiment that goes up is four of these. And when we send that up, it is looking at life with very little gravity, microgravity. And uh, we get microgravity uh, while we're in Earth orbit. And this is really kind of blows me away thinking about it because I really don't like the idea of falling. I don't know if you've ever had one of those nightmares where you're like falling and then you wake up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> so microgravity happens because the space station, the International Space Station, about 250 miles above the planet, is always falling. <laughs> that's something I did not like, know that. Yeah, yeah, it's always falling. And that's why you have microgravity. The oh reason God, why okay. it doesn't land on the earth is it's moving too fast across the ground. So it's ground speed over the, over the earth is about 17,500 miles an hour. Okay, no, I did know that. Yeah, <laughs> at that altitude, um, uh, we basically keep on missing the earth because we're moving so fast. Wow. Right. So that's why we're in orbit. That is a bit mind boggling, isn't yeah, it? Isn't it? Now, if we started going a little slower, what's going to happen? Our orbit will start to fall. And eventually okay. we'd get caught in the atmosphere and we'd, we'd burn up like a, you know, like a, you look at the night sky, you see, um, you know, the, uh, um, the shooting stars or what have you. And if we go a little faster, well, what's going to happen? Our orbit's going to start getting larger and well, you might actually even leave Earth's orbit and you're now in deep space. So that is kind of keeping us there. And that's our microgravity. And our, our, our lab is looking at that fundamental force. What happens to life without this force of gravity that evolution has managed uh, that we think about gas law and gas behaviors, materials, everything is different. There are three mm -hmm. things that you can do when you're in uh, on the space station that most people are focused on. The gravity one is the one I mentioned is what we're focused on in our experiment. But you've also got Earth observation. You can see our beautiful blue planet as it's, you know, underneath here, it's moving very fast. The space station goes around our Earth every 92 minutes, every 90 minutes thereabouts. Uh, wow. So they get whatever, 15 sunrises and sunsets every day. They don't age as fast, but they get to see the sun go up and go down that often, which is pretty wild. Uh, and uh, so that that's, uh, that's so it's Earth observation. It's the microgravity. And the other one is these, uh, the extreme environment of of that that orbit the 250 mm -hmm. miles. And so you've got an increased radiation you don't really have an atmosphere so you know when the sun comes up in the morning it might be cold just before sunrise and it starts to warm up and a beautiful mm -hmm. day like today it's gonna be nice and warm by the afternoon probably have to put your sunscreen on and a hat uh well if you're out in space it's the sun hits you it comes past the the, the earth and all of a sudden it just it, whatever the 200 degrees celsius for whatever it is boom and when wow. it goes in the shadow of the earth, cold, like minus 200, whatever the temperature, super cold. And so think about that expansion and contraction. Yeah. All extreme fluctuations, right? Right. But I still haven't talked about our experiment. So anyway, what we're <laughs> looking at, right, is we're imagining 
uh, how we might, well, this is the fun part. It's like when I was a little kid again, how might you put a garden on Mars, right? Now that is a cool question. What's required to do that? Uh, And then probably more importantly for me, as I'm getting older and I'm thinking about all the things that ail our planet, how can we provide sustainable food here on earth? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're looking at these plants. In this case, we're looking at a little legume. Uh, and you think about legumes, you think about like beans and what have you. But we're mm-hmm. flying something called Trifolium pretense, red clover. And we decided to pick red clover because it has an interesting relationship with a bacteria that's found in soil around the world. And this, so, uh, this bacteria is called rhizobia. Mm-hmm. And rhizobia has a very interesting um, advantage, I guess, in nature. It can actually absorb nitrogen and most organisms cannot absorb nitrogen. So it knows how to oh, do wow. that. And nitrogen, if we understand our plants, need it. They need it pretty importantly. NPK, you know, what and nitrogen, potassium, and uh, what's mm-hmm. the other one? Um, phosphor. All super important uh, for a plant's growth. In fact, if you pick up a bag of at the at the, uh, the nursery, you're going to see the NPK numbers there right on the bag. But nitrogen, this little bacteria can grab the nitrogen from the oxygen. I mean, from from the atmosphere. And uh, what does it do with it? It actually looks for and builds a symbiotic relationship with a plant like the red clover or like a green bean or chickpea, any of the legumes. Uh, And if it's the right species, they're actually going to do this little dance. And the plant says, hey, listen, I got a whole bunch of extra sugar because I'm doing this photosynthesis thing. And, uh, you know, I would kind of like your nitrogen. So down all the way in the, in the soil at the root <laughs> level, they do this little dance. And this is what our, my astrobotanists tell me. So I'm describing more as a layperson rather than don't ask me about the chemistry and what have you. But there's an interaction that happens at the root level. And it, you actually get these nodules forming that are these pockets of nitrogen that the plant can convert to nitrates and, and nitrites. And then I guess it converts to ammonia and some other things that the plant can use. And of course the bacteria is loving those sugars. Feed me the mm-hmm. sugars coming from photosynthesis. So the bacteria is happy, the plant's happy. And what's really cool is our soil is happy because our soil is getting enriched with nitrogen as opposed to let's say an artificial fertilizer. And the artificial fertilizers do an incredible, this is usually petroleum based. And what they're doing is they're really pumping our plants up and they grow really fast and big at a cost. It's literally sucking the, all the little microorganisms are killing those out and our soils being depleted. So how might we use something like this rhizobia with these plants, like these legumes, our little red clover and find a way to build a sustainable agriculture here on earth. And if we can learn how to do that, might we be able to do something on the surface of the moon or on Mars? It's a very long voyage to Mars and packaged food isn't going to last under current, uh, uh, our current technology. In fact, the brightest people on the planet still haven't solved this problem. So I'm super excited about that. And I'm super excited about getting young people involved in these investigations and imagining what they might do if they want to put something on another planet or what they might want to do just in their own backyard to make their backyard more healthy and growing some cool food. That is, it's amazing. It, it actually, as you were describing sort of the interplay between the soil and the plants, it almost sounds like it's, it's like a natural bartering system that like mother nature kind of has, right? Yeah, between, things have evolved, right? <laughs> yeah. And it, I think it also, it, it makes me think of the fact that, you know, our, 
natural systems that we have. I think we, we, we don't think of trees and plants and all of these other sort of living organisms that exist as being able to intelligently communicate. But in fact, they do, they have, they are, and it's critical to the sustainability of, like you said, life here on earth. And if we can inspire kids to, to get excited about that through uh, what's happening in space, that is a huge net positive for, for where we need to go and, and how as sort of a collective, um, you know, society here on earth, how we, how we do really think about sustainability here on earth. So I, I really appreciate you going into that detail and explaining that to our audience, because I think it's really some powerful stuff that magnitude.io is doing and, and with, with the ExoLab. Are you brand new to destination imagination and ready to learn more? Join us for an introductory webinar. These 45-minute information sessions are designed for parents, educators, and volunteers who are ready to learn the basics of DI and how to get started. Sign up to attend a complimentary live session online or download the captioned video on demand. Register today at destinationimagination.org slash the big idea. So my question for you sort of as a follow-up is, if someone wanted to get their students involved or participate in the next exo lab, how might they do that? Well, that's pretty easy. Actually, you just go to our you know website, magnitude.io, and we've got some information there. Um, and our name magnitude came with purpose. Um, it actually came just in a flash of brilliance of literally walking out of a building with my co-founder when we're thinking about organizing the company. And we wanted to make a difference in education, uh, but not just an incremental change. We wanted to introduce change orders of magnitude more than what we were experiencing, both with respect to reach and also with respect to cost. Because as I mentioned earlier, and I think many people know, space is not inexpensive. It's Mm -hmm. really expensive. And until folks like SpaceX came along with reusable rockets, it was really ridiculously expensive. It's getting better and better. Um, and so cost is a factor. Uh, and if you want to go to space, who wants to spend you know, $50,000 or $100,000 or maybe less if you're kind of in a cooperative kind of arrangement or there's competitions um, and there's really kind of there are many other variations, but there are basically two types of, uh, of engagements one can do, a cooperative engagement or a competitive engagement. And competition is awesome because you always find the, the brightest and most uh, unique uh, and you can select. You know, this is mm-hmm. out of 10,000 teams. This team was the best team or however you might want to set it up. Competition's good. But if we're just exploring and we just want to have a little bit of fun. Sometimes competition might take someone that is not really necessarily comfortable about it or doesn't want to compete, but they love sharing. They love working together. They love collaboration. Mm-hmm. And so what we want to do with magnitude is reduce cost and introduce collaboration rather than competition. We want every student to be able to experience this and be able to say, this is for me, or maybe it's not, but it isn't some barrier. And we didn't want to add the added burden of competing against something. And we felt that was super important. Um, And so our cost to enjoy a mission to space like this is just $10 for a student. 
Wow. Just um, right. That's, I think that's pretty reasonable. I that's mean, that's incredibly reasonable. I think it's less than the cost of a bus to go from your school to a, to a learning center, to a, you know, a, a museum or something. Um, and so we wanted to make it very affordable and that's a multi-week mission. This next mission going up is probably going to be about eight weeks from beginning to end. Uh, and so it's very, very affordable. And then there's other equipment that an educator or a school district would need to get that would support that. But again, we try to be very reasonable with that. So under $500, a, a classroom can get set up with that basic architecture. And then each of the students at $10 a seat would join us on the ride. Right. That four inch cube that I talked about, the cube uh, labs or the cube sats, our variation in earth are two of those. So about eight inches tall, or about 20 centimeters tall by four by four to replicate what our exolab does in space. And that growth chamber is a network of internet of things device that's connecting schools around the world to the laboratory experiment that's in orbit. So while your classroom is looking at this dance between the bacteria and the plant on Earth with gravity, you can also see what's happening in other parts of the world. So you might be in Boston or uh, in, in, in San Francisco, uh, but you might have a, a school on our network from Sydney or from somewhere in Sri Lanka or in South Africa or Greece. And so that worldwide connection is a lot of fun because it opens it up beyond the science where you can actually exchange and communicate with them as well. So it's super easy to get started. Go to magnitude.io. You can join us. And I'm very wordy, as you can probably tell from our conversation, Andrew. And I'm always willing to chat more and provide more details. So hopefully I'm not just over talking here. No, this is it's really good. And I think actually getting down to the specifics is really helpful um, to really understand what it is that like teachers and students and educators are actually participating in. So really what you're talking about, too, is is you're tracking what's happening on the International Space Station. And at the same time, you're sort of doing that control experiment with your with your class and potentially classrooms all over the world um, to, to look. And, and sort of compare uh, what's happening both on the International Space Station and sort of at home in your location with the with the the plants that you're growing as well, right? Exactly, exactly that's, right. And that's where the fun begins. Thanks for listening to What's the Big Idea? This is part one of two of our interview with Ted Tagami from Magnitude.io. Tune in next week for part two. We would like to acknowledge that this episode of What's the Big Idea was recorded on land originally inhabited and cultivated by the Lenape and Ohlone and Shawnee Nations. We are grateful for this land and for the people who have stewarded it for generations. This episode was produced by Kelsey Selleck with additional material provided by Renee Rainville and Johnny Wells and music by Kevin McLeod. Special thanks to our guest, Ted Tagami, for joining us today. You can learn more about Ted by following him on social media at Tagami. To learn more about our show and about DI, visit us at destinationimagination.org. Destination Imagination is a US-based charitable 501c3 nonprofit with a global reach, and we rely on donations from listeners like you to support our mission and inspire and equip youth to imagine and innovate through the creative process. If you'd like to inspire even more big ideas for young people around the world, please consider making a charitable contribution to Destination Imagination at destinationimagination.org slash donate. I'm Andrew Whitmire. Thanks for listening to What's the Big Idea? 
The U.S. Department of Labor estimates that 65% of today's students will be employed in jobs that have yet to be invented. We have no way of knowing what those jobs will entail, but we do know that the skills that will prepare them for success are the skills that they develop through destination imagination. Hi, I'm Johnny Wells, Director of Education for Destination Imagination. Before joining the staff, I was a team manager for over 40 teams. Being a team manager is still one of the most rewarding experiences for me as I watched hundreds of students thrive and grow. Destination Imagination, or DI, is an international project-based competition that reinforces the four C's, creativity, communication, collaboration, and critical thinking. You probably heard about those skills in today's episode, and DI is the place where kids like yours develop those skills for themselves. Students work together in small teams to create solutions to an open-ended challenge. DI's team challenges fall into one of seven categories, scientific, technical, engineering, fine arts, improvisation, service learning, or, for the younger children, early learning. A DI team selects one of these seven challenges and prepares a solution to present at a local tournament. Throughout the experience, students create projects, solve problems, build relationships, learn new concepts, and have a great time in the process. We're building the workforce of the future. Today's DI participants are tomorrow's innovators, problem solvers, and leaders. If that sounds like a good fit for you and the young people in your life, we'd love to have you join us. To get started today, visit destinationimagination.org slash learn more.